0: no nai hotaka o kopapa korangi. This is the second podcast of Kupapa Ko korangi Up or Down, reframing the costs of climate change. I'm Marnie Dunlop, the host of today's podcast, and I'm here with Sean Awatere and Jen Margaret with Kamua Kamuri, looking back to move forward. In this podcast, we want to consider the systems of knowledge and finance our early Pākehā settlers brought to the Svīnua and to explore how our economy, our economic frameworks, have evolved and been impacted by past decision making. Looking particularly at the way we work with the land, we're exploring what this could mean for our future with a changing climate. But before we get into it, I'll ask our Manuhiri to introduce themselves. Kaya Sean, uh,
1: I'm a researcher with Manaki Whenua Landcare Research and I'm also on the kāgui for the Deep South Natural Science Challenge. Most of my work involves looking at how māta and Māori-informed practices can help inform natural resource management decision-making within Aotearoa, including climate change adaptation processes.
2: Kia ora, Sean. And Jean Margaret, I'm a te Tiriti educator, working predominantly with tangata Tiriti organisations to understand our history, central role of te Tiriti O Waitangi, our responsibilities to te Tiriti, and how we bring those alive today. And so, working with organisations um, and individuals across private, government, community sector for those discussions.
0: Kamwa looking back to move forward and so how do we grapple with our past and reconsider our present so to break it down we'll start with you Sean what focado or values do you think underpin our current economic system and how does that play out in environmental or climate change policy I
1: think probably the underlying fakaro that's informed a lot of our economic thinking is this notion of efficiency And generally, the way that we measure efficiency is through GDP. So GDP is gross domestic product that measures pretty much how much a country produces in a year. And that has primarily been the main monitoring mechanism for defining how good an economy is going. To be fair, there has been a shift in recent times towards the notion of well-being as a whole has been the main focus for economic policy but for a large part of our economic history producing lots of stuff mostly low value stuff at high volume has been the way that we've uh, organized our economic production within all. so what we always want to see in terms of this economic paradigm is economic growth Increasing year upon year upon year because that's what the model says is that in order to achieve well being, you need to keep growing and growing. What that notion means is that if the rich get richer and the poor remain the same or get poorer, then that's a pretty optimal outcome. It's not a socially optimal outcome, but from an economics business point of view, that is an efficient outcome. That's something I think we need to change up. Often, what it fails to acknowledge is some of the social costs. So for example, if we look at forestry, it's an efficient uh, production because they're producing a lot of the product and they export it internationally overseas, primarily to China. But often the costs of the production and the environmental costs are generally borne by society as a whole. So a classic example, of that is landslides plus forestry slash. So forestry slash is the leftovers that uh, are generated once the people who are harvesting the trees cut off all the branches. They only want the main stem, trunk of a tree, and they leave all the the rest of the the branches behind. Then during high precipitation events or floods, what happens is that all those branches that are on the steep slopes of a hill, they wash off into Gullies and streams and into rivers, and then they build up on bridges and they damage that infrastructure. As you're seeing, the government has just uh, announced a lot of uh, putia for relief packages, Well, that's coming out of the, the taxpayers' contribution to society. So that's quite an inefficient type of outcome. And I think we probably need to ensure that we move away from those types of practices and towards something that's more sustainable.
0: So you're saying that the ideal of efficiency is one of the drivers, but isn't always the outcome, right? Because while it might be efficient for the forestry company, it's really not efficient for communities or for government. So Jen, on that, can we just step back a little bit to think about how we got here in the first place and what drove those earlier decision makers?
2: I think... As Sean was talking about who pays the cost of the actions of private companies, it takes us back to some of the very early bailouts by colonial governments of private enterprise and really the foundational actions of colonisation in Aotearoa, those being the actions of the New Zealand Company, who in 1839 sold nearly 100,000 acres of land in Aotearoa without actually having ever come to the country, without having any discussion with the people whose lands they were speculating on and selling off. So that financial base of of Aotearoa is in that base of colonisation. And the New Zealand company, of people kind of may or may not, know the story, but when we think about that now that's pretty outrageous. You're on the other side of the world you set up a company, you sell off titles to land that you have no right to and at the same time the context for this is that the colonial office in Britain has just recognised and acknowledged uh, so the declaration of independence, that mana that um, sovereign authority that control of all of the lands of Aotearoa is with hapū. Alongside this, private company is taking these actions, um, which joined live with what the Colonial Office has done. They go ahead, New Zealand Company bring people out here. A whole lot of stuff ensues, obviously. Uh, but what happens is very early on, the Colonial Office does investigations into the actions of the New Zealand Company. They see all of the land sales and deeds as invalid. However, They then prop up the New Zealand company. So the New Zealand company's um, financial speculation doesn't work, their company model doesn't work, but the government props them up. And actually one of the first actions of the colonial government was to bail them out for about 200,000 pounds in the early 1850s. At that time, massive amount, and they also took over the interests that the New Zealand company had in terms of over a million acres of Māori land. So what sits with those financial capitalist models from our history is also the fundamental racist, white supremacist assumptions that permeate our systems. So ideas that if land's not being used productively and if people are uncivilised and not Christian, then we have rights to those lands. When I say we you know, Christian, Parker British at that time society. And so there's a whole lot of assumptions that sit under all of that and it's that whole critical layer that then translate to now um, when we look at wealth inequity and 50% of Aotearoa having 2% of the wealth and the top 10% having 60% of the wealth and the huge over-representation of Parkia in that top bracket and the underrepresentation of Maori. We've got to recognise that that wealth for Pakeha has come through those actions of taking of Maori lands, mm, mm. not only through the original um, land transactions, but also wars mm. and laws, really powerful laws, to alienate lands.
0: That was a succinct and articulate summary, Jen killed it, Sean, how do you see the differences between the way society and economy were organised in the past compared with what drives us now in modern society?
1: Yeah, pre-capitalism, the way that we organised our resources was to ensure that we maintain the balance with the taia, with the natural environment. But more importantly, I think that ethic of kaitiakitanga or sustainable resource management really helped form and shape the way that Māori in those early days of interacting with the natural environment behaved with respect to generating well-being for whānau and hapū. The focus on individualism dominates mainstream economy, whereas from a Māori perspective, it was around ensuring the well-being of the collective was maintained.
0: And Sean, just on... And and, and Jen do chime in. Sorry, I know I keep on referencing the cyclone, but I think it's just a good way to kind of reflect on how these drivers are very key. And so an example of that is following the relief payments and the relief packages that were announced by the government. One of the first packages was for farmers, orchardists and growers whose fields and crops and things were affected. And so I think from the top of my head, it was about 25 million dollars. Um, and that was to help with cleanups and those sorts of things. Uh, about a week later, the Māori relief package was announced, which was $15 million. Does that show us where the priorities lie in terms of what drives those decisions, especially around how and, and what we use our whenua for in Aotearoa? I
1: think it identifies what the priorities are for around how we organise ourselves as a society. We saw with some of the media commentators criticising the government's response to provide support for Māori, making the case that you know, it's not productive use of spending. But I think those types of investments by the government produce other types of benefits. And I think there's like economic well-being, there's social well-being, there's cultural well-being, and there's environmental well-being. And those are kind of key policy points within the, the Treasury in terms of their full wellbeing framework that Treasury has been working on. The shift towards wellbeing thinking means that we have a broader set of criteria in order to make decisions. It's going to take a while in order to change up uh, the narrative thinking within Aotearoa that economic well-being is the be-all and end-all. Oftentimes when you go into situations that involve decision-makers, they look towards what might be some of the key sets of information that will help inform decision-making, and oftentimes they will draw upon scientific information will say what the potential ecological and environmental impacts might be or what might be some of the advice that comes from kaitiaki, people who are involved in natural resource management from the hapū and iwi type of perspective. Ultimately, what tends to sway decision-makers is how much things are going to cost or what might be the the economic benefits from a particular activity that they might be keen to invest in. Until we actually change it up in terms of how we prioritise our investments that are based on a broad set of criteria We will continue to repeat those mistakes that New Zealanders have repeated for the, you know, the past hundred or fifty years or so.
2: Gene, your thoughts on that point? I was thinking, as Sean was speaking, just about how actually when we think of wellbeing frameworks being the kind of new thing for government, well, actually, there's a very long history in Aotearoa <laughs> of wellbeing frameworks. If they had been allowed to continue to flourish and if Pākehā had actually responded to them rather than imposing the supposed superior approaches that uh, my people brought, uh, we'd be in a very different place right now. There's a very slow process and a whole lot of things systems that need to shift to move from this place of the highest value being put on efficiency and on money and that I see that play out you know in conversations that I have with health workers for instance you know recently well sometimes what will come up is well if we do these different ways of doing things for Maori what's the cost of that going to be you know that costs money to do things differently and There's so much in there because what's what's the cost of a life and what's the cost of having a system that values my life because I'm Pākehā higher than your life because you're Māori because that's what our current system does. So one of the things is that with Pākehā frames being dominant in our society through colonisation is it's hard for me, my people, to even see them sometimes. <laughs> and it's hard to see something like our current economic systems as being culturally specific and actually time-bound. And so one of the things that that then requires of us is to actually open up our imagination to other possibilities. And the starting place for that is actually seeing that our, our Pākehā ways of doing things are just one way <laughs> <They're not> there. <laughs> there's other ways that have been around in this country for a very long time and to see that if we're going to flourish and be well we need to step back and give space to rangatiratanga and to the flourishing and valuing in a holistic way mm. life and wellbeing yeah, I
1: just want to pick up on those yeah comments that Jen has made, and one is around the assumed normativeness of economic measures to be the uh, the best measure that we make decisions upon, normative in terms of it's normal, it's accepted, it's adopted, it's universally known. So back in the day, we used to have a system that did invest back in the Michael Joseph Savage days. where you had with a rich economic history of investing publicly into services and provision of things within our society that wasn't necessarily just get around making money. There's been a real shift in thinking that's been informed by the the reforms that occurred back in the nineteen eighties, particularly around this notion of Roger which was really about rolling back the provision of services by the government and letting the market decide what was best for society. So Roganomics was uh, the name for the neoliberalist of economic policies, named after the former Minister of Finance, Roger Douglas. But the theories for which it's based upon is just basically what some dude in Chicago School of Economics based in the 1980s or 70s come up with post keynesian economics. Out of those reforms has come the approach that was referred to before in terms of letting the market decide what was best. Businesses are the best at looking after our resources. And so a classic example is, oh, is the forestry for example. So sockman Boulder happens, which was around 1988. So that was when the last kind of significant rain event occurred for or Gisborne in that area, significant landslide damage to our whenua. And as a result, the government implemented a program called the Erosion Control Funding Programme, or the East Coast Forestry Project. And the East Coast Forestry Project was a significant fiscal investment that helped to support the jobs in the area, but then also helped to stabilize the land and mitigate erosion in that area. But the cutting rights were then sold off to private companies because, you know, the theory goes that companies know best how to manage natural resources. And that's yeah, led in part to some of the forestry practices or malpractices that have occurred in some of those areas and it generated a lot of jobs generated a lot of money for companies but it didn't really empower people in terms of local communities to realize their own livelihoods with respect to carrying out entrepreneurial activities or their own businesses within their forestry sector it was a capitalist model of corporation that owned the rights to carry out the activity but we'll just employ the labor we we'll is just employ those local Maori to do all the hard work take all the risk, but we'll take the, the profit at the end of the day. And that's not really empowering communities and we need to shift up that paradigm and move to something that is going to improvements in inequity for the local communities, whāna and Māori.
0: Personally, like you said, you know, I need to, to understand, and, but you know, as a wahine, staunch, Ngāpuhi Māori, you know, woman, I'm struggling to reconcile with what a well-being centered, you know, economic policy looks like because i'm thinking about whānau who um, need to pay the bills or i'm like oh gosh i can't plant trees you do like I, I, this is on a practical level of understanding but i guess though how do we take people along on that journey to to understand that you're going to be okay you're going to be able to pay your bills, you're going to be able to feed your whānau if we move away from the economic policy. Do you you hear what I'm saying, Sean, in terms of that practical level?
1: Yep, because they're caught up in a system that requires you to pay bills. Jobs seems to be the focus. Alternative approaches, similar to Jobs for Nature, as a fiscally funded way of ensuring that people do have livelihoods, i.e. utilising taxes, in order to invest in in activities that aren't necessarily going to benefit an individual or a corporation, but it's going to benefit society more broadly. That's what we call, in economics-speak, positive externality. So planting trees creates uh, carbon sequestration. In terms of the benefits from that sequestration, i.e. provision of... um, of fresh air and the mitigation of climate change. Everyone in society, everyone in the world benefits. And because you've got that public benefit or that broader societal benefit, you need to have some type of uh, wider public investment in it. An alternative way of practising is looking at the whole idea around social entrepreneurship or local entrepreneurship. So Hikurangi Enterprises in Te Teirāwhiti is, uh, I think, a good example of that, where local communities are engaging in activities that provide people with, with a livelihood. Whether it's uh, planting trees, extracting manica oil, or nutraceuticals, or you know, positive uh, rumour that comes from some of our tipu, from our plants. Engaging in those types of practices on a small scale, in order to ensure that people have got um, those day-to-day needs met. Because if you buy into this notion that you have to export it at at quantity, then it's participating in the current dominant economic paradigm where you need scale, where you need to plant the whole landscape out in monocultural-type species in order to meet the needs or the demands of the market. But if you're only doing enough just for... You know, your local business, for your local livelihoods, that's enough. That provides us with some type of alternative. It's a mixture. Yeah. We can't all be just reliant on one industry because we've seen time and time and again when that industry collapses, when the demand for their product runs out, it's mighty who pay the cost because we are generally the ones that are the last ones into that industry or are the productive labour. That underpins the creation or the extraction of those resources.
2: Can I just pick up on that idea of what's enough that's in there? Because I think it's a critical one. And again, when we think about the huge inequities in our society and that core question of, you know, where does this wealth come from? And uh, recognising, particularly for, for Pākehā, the ways that Um, we have profited from the dispossession of Māori and the intergenerational wealth that comes through that. There's a core question around what's enough and not only in terms of what we do in terms of industry but also personal wealth. And I think it's a starting place. Sometimes with these what do we do about this mess questions, yes, we need to look at systems change and there's responsibility for government when we think about the role of financial institutions who are making huge profits in colonisation. There's a huge responsibility there to actually for financial institutions to act, but there's also the ability for uh, individuals and communities to act. Where do you choose to direct funds if you already have enough and you have wealth that you can share what are the choices that you make? So there's really practical things around that. There's a whole there's a whole list of Ewi Copapamari providers that are supporting communities post Cyclone. So that's a choice you can give to those providers if if you are in that situation. So I think there's recognizing that for parcare, there's a whole range of ways that we can support change. Some of some of it is about mindsets and asking the questions when we're in rooms and in conversation around actually what frames are, are dominating here are we listening, are we hearing are we centering the o Māori approaches to this question are we funding them <laughs> those approaches and then some, some practical stuff about what we do with money and with resource and I think there are some interesting things that are starting to happen in terms of more individuals actually looking at What happens with land and the profits from land when they sell it? What are the opportunities for individuals to return lands? And not everybody's in that financial situation to be able to do that. So it's important to acknowledge too that everybody can do the parts of sort of understanding why we've got here and recognising the absolute necessity and value to Aotearoa of shifting from monocultural ways to actually recentering um teo Māori ways of responding and being.
1: So I to pick up on those points mm. that has made because they're, they're quite important. And what's often missed is that our holdings corporations, Māori ones, and our Māori businesses are often, it's a say, trapped within that profit-making economic paradigm. So is $2 billion worth of assets enough before there is that shift in terms of livelihood, economies being developed for, for the local people. And a so-called good investment is always one that's gonna generate revenue or profit. So if we flip the, um, the standard operating procedures for investment towards more of a well-being centric approach that's based on not only jobs, but then also on the social and the cultural outcomes that are generated. And one way you can do it is ensuring that the evaluation criteria goes beyond just a return on equity, but includes other things like whether there's intergenerational transfer of knowledge. So if you're going to be doing planting of trees, uh, you're having one that ensures that whana know what the purpose of those trees are, what are the benefits from a cultural perspective? Are you engaging in riparian planting? Are you fencing off waterways? Are you also looking after the animals on that uh, property? So ha- having a broad suite of evaluation criteria.
0: How is that applied in your in your whanau farm, uh, Sean?
1: So for example, the the way that we... Look at the prioritizing activities. I wish we had plenty to invest in, <laughs> but at the moment we're just um, trying to ensure that we fence off waterways and put in riparian trees. So there's um, a particular productive uh, parcel of land that, if we wanted to, we could put on quite large numbers of stock. If the the tenant put on more animals, we could definitely get a bit more rental from the, the tenant putting on more stock. But because we're, we're keenly interested in maintaining the well-being of the waterways on that Fenwa, we were quite happy that the, the tenant has reduced the stock numbers in that area. Yeah, we want to walk the talk in terms of ensuring that uh, the well-being of the waipu river is maintained through our activities so reducing stocking numbers is one way of uh, putting those values into practice and ensuring that our waterways are fenced off and there's been a number of funds that have been directed into that area in terms of the uh, freshwater innovation fund that has helped to support those types of activities so a number of our farms around the Toria area being fenced off particularly the the waterways and I think we're real keen on bringing back indigenous biodiversity into the area and one of the things that we're wrestling with at the moment is that we do have a pine plantation on our penawa and we're very cognizant that if that area is clear felled, it's going to be quite vulnerable and there's a marae at the bottom of the catchment that would bear the negative impacts of any potential landslides or flooding that might occur in the future. So we're thinking about what are our options in terms of what might be the harvest management practices, changing our practices from felling to coop type of forestry and harvesting. Yeah, we... Uh, you don't just kind of cut down all the trees in the block, which is the is standard practice here, but you only selectively harvest certain areas on the block. You either let those areas that have been cut down naturally regenerate into a indigenous forest, or you actively plant in those areas. So those are the discussions that we have before us in terms of maintaining those core values like Kei Tanga that are part and parcel of our, our identity.
0: How are those discussions, though, with whānau? Is everyone is everyone on on that journey and understanding the sorts of things and changes and the, the different approaches that need to, to be had?
1: Yeah, you have mm. to have those discussions. You have to bring people along that journey because everyone's brought up differently. We've got different influences. A lot of the whānau want to see change happen on the whenua because they are directly impacted by some of the negative impacts, but then others probably have to have their understanding of what the issues are further develop. Because if you think about some of the people i worked with on the committee, when they were kids, they were pretty much taught that you had to cut down scrub or manuka, kainuka on the uh, farm. So a lot of that country into Teirawhiti was originally sheep and beef. And in order to establish those farms, there had to be wholesale clearance of the indigenous land cover in that area, which occurred, uh, a lot of occurred around the 1930s, and then also continued right up into the 1970s. I remember as a child, uh, when I was living in Gisborne, the fire and the horizon being dark and uh, yeah, orange, because that was from all the smoke fires of <laughs> back in those days where they used to burn down scrub. Well, that was the farming term for it. And so you have to have those discussions with whanau around the need to start planting manaka and garnica. <laughs> as that, so that could be like a huge paradigm shift for them because they got that trauma of having to do scrub cutting when they were young. <laughs> so <laughs> you ask them to start planting those trees, it can be uh, a lot for them to unpack.
0: Triggering. So
1: yeah, yeah, it can trigger that historical drama that they
0: were exposed to. This has been such a rich conversation, and I'm using that word rich because it's made me think about what that actually means to us. What does it mean to be rich, to be wealthy? For you, Jen, what's the one thing you'd like people to take away from this conversation?
2: I think particularly as Parker talking to my people (laughs) and what is to be taken out of it is to do the the work and recognise that it's continual work, not only to understand our history and our place in what we are living now, but also how that shows up in our everyday ways of being. How our history has shaped us shapes how we see ourselves and shapes um, our relationships with tangata whenua. And recognising the problematic and the harmful ways of our people, Pākehā people, and, and the daily kind of ways that that plays out is critical. But in that understanding and seeing the possibility and the continual generosity of tangata whenua to tangata in terms of being in these lands, and I think finding hopeful ways and healthy ways of being in Aotearoa. Um, and it's not about always having the answers, as Pākehā, to this. It's actually sometimes about listening. It is about acting, but it's about listening and responding and critiquing some of the existing stuff, getting engaged in the conversations about different ways of acting and being.
0: No pressure. No pressure. Sean, what what would what would you want people to take away from from this topic and from this corridor?
1: Yeah, adaptation is important, but equally important is all that corridor around mitigation, right? Which is the one are the activities that we can engage in that is going to help slow down the impacts of climate change and and lessen its impact. So. Um, some of the things that we've been thinking about after engaging with and hapu in Te Te Rāwhiti is this you around So, papatunaku lays bare, let's re-cloak you. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is um, to recognise that markets or companies or businesses don't have the solution for mitigation and that it actually requires a societal wide effort. And if it requires a societal wide effort, then the way that we engage in activities that are going to encourage mitigation needs to go beyond the reliance on markets and incorporate other types of tools in order to create the incentives for changes in behaviour. And those toolkits need to go beyond what we're New Zealand generally quite scared to do and that's the implementation of taxes, implementation of tougher regulation, in order to ensure that the market is actually responding to the signals from society and the society, particularly whānau Hapu, are not the ones that bear the cost of climate change.
0: Sean Awatserej Jean Margaret Kodua for your focado, your insights on how we need to look back to look forward. Ka mua, ka In the next conversation, we're delving into insurance for adaptation. How do we currently price, pay for, and transfer climate risk? Are these methods reducing danger or delaying what we do about it? Who will be most harmed if we don't support different ways of protecting ourselves and our communities? If you've enjoyed this conversation, do share it. The more people we can get on board thinking about climate change, Mahi, the better our future will look. Kopapa Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge. Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott Murray and Sally Owen. It was edited and produced by Kirsten Johnston at Popsock Media. Studio recordings and mixing was by Will Saunders and Steve Burridge. To learn more about the Deep South Challenge, te, o te tonga, head to deepsouthchallenge.co.nz Komani Dunlop Tene, Thank you for listening. Kia te mauri. Hai kona.